Well, if you've got your Bible ready, turn to Matthew chapter 21 as we get into the last of the parables series. We made it. And we didn't quite get through all of the parables because some of them are so similar to each other, we didn't want to double up, and so we kind of referenced those along the way. I think I counted 41 or 42 parables, depending on whether one counts as a parable or not. It's, it's debatable. Uh, and I, I don't remember how many exactly we covered, but we've covered a lot of them, and today is the last one we're going to talk about. It's been a great series. At least it has been for me. I've learned so much going through this. One of the things I learned last night was how bad my memory is. So last night, as I was preparing to send off the scriptures for the screen so that you can all you know, see and follow along and you at home can follow along, I did a search for um, the name of this message, which is the evil farmers and the, the evil farmers parable. And when I searched for that to find the file to send off to the people, I found two copies one from 2021, which I expected, and one from 2018. And well, that's interesting. There's sermon notes in here from somebody else's message on the evil farmers. And I opened it up and it was my sermon that I preached three years ago in the Gospel of Mark. I know some of you weren't even here three years ago, but we did this long series on the Gospel of Mark. It started before I got here and then we continued it after I got here and wrapped it up. And I have preached on this exact parable three years ago. I could have just pulled out my notes and gone with that when I had to write a whole new sermon. It's totally different, totally fresh. I'm gonna debunk everything I said three years ago. No, it's the same basic, basic principle, same basic application, but a completely different approach to it. And so if you want later, you can go look on our website at the Mark series and, and go back to, it was, I think it was in July of 2018. And you can find the other evil farmers parable message and see how they compare. They are a little bit different. Um, I grew up in Michigan in a rural area we had farmland on all sides, crops and cattle on all four sides of us. And depending on how the wind was blowing, you could definitely tell that there were cattle around. And it was, it was a great place to grow up. And not only did we have all the farmland around us, so it was out in the country, but we also, on our property, we had berries and um, fruit trees and nut trees and a garden. And one of my chores, along with the other kids, I'm the oldest of five kids. So we had five, five kids, I'm the oldest one. And one of the things I had to do when they would come along and help is to be a part of the harvest. And we would go out when it was time to harvest this stuff and we knew how to care for the plants and keep the bugs off of them and make sure they were fertilized and you know, the soil was good and all that stuff so that when the time came, we could reap the benefits and we could gather the vegetables, gather the nuts, gather the fruits, all that kind of stuff. And it was great. Um, until one year, we had this beautiful cherry tree and we loved the cherries from this thing. Anybody a fan of cherries? I love cherries. I love any kind of berry. I know some people are like berries, ew, or cherries, yuck, gross. But I love all that kind of stuff. And we would cover it with a net and it would have all these cherries on it. We'd go take the net off, which was kind of a pain. We had to keep the birds out. That's what the net was for. And then we'd pick all the, the cherries off. And they were delicious. One year, it stopped producing fruit. And it was, it was crazy. We're like, what, what happened? All of a sudden, there's no fruit on this thing. And my dad had heard this myth that if you will injure the tree in some way, it will get stressed and it will go into overproduction to try to heal from that stress and all of a sudden it'll produce a ton of fruit. So he went out into the garage and got an ax and he went to the trunk of this cherry tree and he gave it a good whack. He spanked the tree. And you know what, it worked. The next year, that fruit produced more cherries than we'd ever seen in our lives. It was a huge production of cherries from that discipline 
that he gave that tree because it got stressed and it realized it needed to, to kick it into high gear and produce something or it was gonna die, and it did. God views us like we are branches on a fruit-producing tree or vine. The Bible talks about this all the time. We are Christians that are supposed to produce fruit. And Jesus says he is the vine and God is the gardener. And the gardener expects fruit from his branches. We are the branches on that vine. And if they don't produce fruit, then maybe they need to be disciplined or maybe they need to be removed. How many of you have a garden of some sort? Anybody, kind of, you're just limping along for some people, but it's there still, you know, covered in weeds. If you have a garden with, you know, maybe you've got tomato plants or squash or cucumbers or something like that, and you've got some plants that year after year just are not producing anything anymore, and you've tried everything, you've given them all the love and care they can handle, but they are not producing anything for you, do you leave them there because they look pretty, or do you pull them out and replace them with plants that are actually gonna produce something? You're probably going to pull them out and replace them with something that's actually gonna work, that's gonna do what that plant is supposed to do, it's gonna give you something that's useful. God works the exact same way. He feels that way about his garden. He wants his garden to produce fruit, and if it doesn't produce fruit, well, he's going to do some things to take care of that. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. We'll, we'll get to Matthew 21 in just a minute, but this will help set up that parable. Jesus said, yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this is an important little sidebar just to recognize that if, if we are producing fruit, that fruit doesn't ultimately come from us. We're not the source of that. Yes, Jesus wants us to produce fruit for him, but the fruit is produced on our branches, but it ultimately comes from him. Just like on the vine, the branch itself is not providing the nutrients. The roots and the vine are bringing up the nutrients from the ground and the water, and they're supplying it to the branches that are supplying it to the fruit. And so he wants fruit to be on our branches, but we can't take credit for that fruit. It is all a production of Jesus. Jesus is the vine. We are connected to that. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse six, he says, anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Now that is a challenging thought. Theologically, that is a challenging thought. And we come from a lot of different backgrounds and perspectives here. And in the EFCA, we have a, a broad range of views that we say, yep, that's a reasonable interpretation. We're not gonna argue about that. There are certain things in our doctrine that we hold to very tightly. And there are certain things that we say, hey, there's some room for disagreement about these things. But what is Jesus talking about when he says that a branch that's a part of the vine can be can be thrown away like a useless branch and wither and be gathered in, in a pile to be burned. What is he talking about there? There are two main views that we find among scholars for what this probably refers to. And I think both of them are very plausible. He could be talking about a fake branch that pretended to be a part of the vine. It looked like a normal branch. It hung out with other branches but really it was not a real part of the vine and so it didn't produce any fruit because it wasn't getting any nutrients from the vine. And so at some point it was discovered and it was thrown away because it's not actually a part of the vine to begin with. And that might be what Jesus is talking about here. This would be like the person who says they're a follower of Jesus and they look like a Christian, they act like a Christian, they talk like a Christian, they come and they, and they sit in the pew and they listen to a message but their life isn't changed in any way because they haven't actually trusted in Jesus. He hasn't transformed them from the inside out. 
They're doing the Christian things, and usually what this means is there's still a part of them that thinks I've got to do enough to be accepted by God. I've got to earn this in some way. I've got to do the good stuff in some way. And there, there's a lot of teaching out there that claims to be Christian that, that would have this kind of perspective that, yeah, it's Jesus plus this. And what we believe is the Bible says it's Jesus plus nothing. It is Jesus alone that saves us. It is trusting in him. And yes, that should lead to a transformed life, but a transformed life doesn't lead to being okay with God. It's trusting in Jesus, and then God transforms you. Then you get a transformed life. We don't earn our way to heaven. And so it is possible that these are people who claim to be Christians, look like Christians, but they have no fruit because they don't actually have saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's a possibility. It could also be that he's talking about a real branch that is connected to the vine that's just not producing any fruit anymore. And this would be someone who does have saving faith in Jesus. They believe in Jesus Christ. He's regenerated them. He's transformed their life, but they've just stopped producing fruit anymore, or at least not much, or they're producing bad fruit. And they're not doing the things that God wants his children to do on this earth. And, and what Jesus says here is that that branch can be thrown away like it's useless and wither and be burned up. Now, sometimes when we see something about burning in scripture, we think that means hell. That's not typically what you should immediately jump to. That just means it's gotten rid of, it's done away with. It's a, it's a symbolism thing. And so what this could refer to is that person who believes in Jesus but they become so distracted by other things, by, by things that, that pertain to themselves, their career, their education, petty grievances, things that distract them from what God really wants them to do. So they're not producing fruit for him anymore. And their attention is so much on themselves that they don't have anything to do for other people. And being a branch that doesn't produce fruit is not a good place to be when the gardener comes around. So what does God do with those people? And you may have never heard this before, so I recognize that for some people, you may be aware of this. For some people, this is going to be quite a shock. The Bible teaches that there are times when a Christian can be so useless on earth to God that he doesn't keep them on earth any longer. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but the Bible teaches this in multiple places. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he shares with the Corinthian church about communion. He says, some of you, because of how you have approached communion and the sinfulness with which you've done it, have become sick or died because of how you approach this. He's talking to believers in Jesus who are sinful in how they approach communion. You didn't know communion was that big of a deal, did you? They were sinful. They drank the cup unworthily. He says, we cannot drink the cup unworthily. And, and they, they did all of this in a sinful manner. And so he says, because of this, some of you have become sick and some of you have even died because of that. Ananias and Sapphira come to mind. Uh, we have every reason to believe that they were followers of Jesus, no indication that they were not. In fact, they were held accountable as if they were. And they brought a, a gift to the church and claimed that it was one thing, but it was really something else. And, and they dropped dead because of what they did. John tells us in one of his letters that there are sins that believers can commit that lead to death. It is possible for God to reach a point where he says, this child of mine is no longer doing what they need to be doing and they are not going to represent me on this earth anymore. God can do that. And so it is very possible that that's what Jesus is talking about, or maybe he means both of these things. Maybe he has both in mind, the fake branch that doesn't belong there, the real branch that is not going to be connected to the vine on this earth anymore. Both of those are possible. Scholars have both of those things. But either way, the expectation here is that God's people will produce fruit. The prophet Isaiah talked about God creating a vineyard in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 5. He creates this vineyard and he builds this wall around it and a hedge and a tower. He carves a wine press out of rock. This great vineyard that's there. 
which is Israel. But when he expected sweet grapes, all he got were bitter grapes. It did not produce the fruit that he wanted. And our parable for today, Matthew chapter 21, picks up on this idea from Isaiah about the vineyard. In fact, it starts off very, very similar. Let's read it now in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus says, now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. Now that first part is exactly like Isaiah, where it changes is leasing the vineyard to tenant farmers and moving to another country. He says, at the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. That's from, Isaiah, uh, from uh, Psalms. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Now we're gonna make some observations about this parable. What can we learn from the landowner and the farmers and everything that's going on here? We'll start with the landowner. We know that he's a thoughtful planner. We know that he has built this beautiful vineyard and done everything he can to make sure that it's successful, not for him, but for his renters. He plans to rent this out and move to another country where he can retire and gain the passive income of this vineyard. So he has set it up in a certain way so that he can rent it out so it'll be desirable to these other farmers and then he would get a portion of their harvest. That's how rent was paid sometimes back then. If you rented out a field to someone or a vineyard to someone, instead of them giving you money, they might just give you some of the produce and that might be better and more desirable than collecting in cash back then. So with his property in working order, he moves to this other country where he wanted to live and when it was harvest time, he sent his servants to go collect his rent, his share of the grapes. But the farmers renting the land killed two of the servants and they beat another one severely. Presumably that one went back and told the owner what happened. So then he sends more servants and the same thing happens to them. And then the owner did something that to me just seems really dumb. I mean, weren't you thinking that when you read this story? Are you kidding me, guy? They just killed all these servants and now you're gonna send your son? So what do we do with that? Sometimes when we read the parables, we read into them way too much and we try to pull out meaning that isn't really meant to be there. 
And there are times where a parable or an analogy or a story is said in a way because it connects to something else and because it works with that connection, but we're not supposed to follow all these other ends and trails to try to see what, what does this mean? What does that aspect mean? The purpose of this parable is not to figure out was the father dumb or loving of his son? It's not to figure that out. The purpose of the parable is completely different. And so we don't need to worry too much about why did the father send his son? It works for the story. It's hard for us to accept that because it feels like, come on, man, why would you do that? But you will see as we go through this, there is a very good reason why there needs to be a son involved and why that son needs to go to these people and what happens to the son needs to happen in the story. So don't worry too much about the intelligence or the love of the father. That is not the point here. But seriously, how would you like to be that kid? Hey, son, I got a job for you. Remember that uh, piece of land where they keep killing all the people I send there? I'd like you to go, unarmed by yourself. Don't worry, you'll be fine. It does seem pretty stupid, doesn't it? But it's just for the story. It connects to something else that has to do with the sun, and we'll come back to that later. Um, in fact, this parable actually has spoilers in it that speak to things that are about to happen in the future with the sun that the people originally listening to it wouldn't understand. They don't even know how much meaning is packed in this parable. We get to look back and see all of the meaning that's there, which is really, really cool. Um, but these guys, these farmers, they're really rotten people. And what they're doing here, here's, here's why they're doing this. Um, if, according to rabbinic tradition, uh, if you could squat on a piece of land for three years and the owner didn't come back to, play, to claim his property, you got to keep it. So that's what they have in mind. Here's the heir to the estate. We'll kill the son. The owner is not coming back here. And if we can stay here for three years, this place is legitimately and legally ours. So they really did think, yeah, we can, I mean, this is a story, but in the story, they really did think, yeah, we get to keep this piece of property. It's going to be ours. We get to own it, even though we didn't build it, even though we were renting it, and it's not ours to begin with, we could actually own this thing if we kill the son. Foreshadowing. Now that's the end of the story. That's where it leaves off. There's no happy ending. There's no resolve to this. Jesus actually puts the ending to his audience. He says, what do you think should happen at this point? And who is his audience? Well, Matthew tells us it's the religious leaders. It actually literally says it's the chief priests and the Pharisees that are listening to this. And Jesus puts it to these people. Now these, by the way, these were important people. The chief priests and the Pharisees for different reasons. The chief priests had the temple structure and the Pharisees were trying to bring a lot of the temple regulations to the everyday people and saying, we all need to elevate our religious game here. And so that's what the Pharisees were all about is taking some of the, the stricter aspects of adherence to religious law and saying, not just at the temple, not just when you're going to the temple, but all the time, we got extra stuff for you to follow to be right with God. And the, the priests uh, were just uh, largely, not entirely, but largely a bunch of very corrupt people. They had a lot of power, they had a lot of money, and they had rebuilt the system that God created into a system that was designed to just give them lots of power and money. It's what they were doing. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, we got a team that's gonna go there in November. We're gonna go over to Israel, and if they want to, they'll be able to go tour um, old homes that have been uncovered of the priests back from Jesus' day. And they were some of the nicest homes in Jerusalem. These people had a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of influence. They turned the temple compound into a marketplace. They used some of the temple storerooms that were supposed to be used for the storage of, of resources to provide for the priests and the Levites. And they turned those into warehouses for the people that were doing business in the temple. I mean, these were pretty awful 
people, but they had a lot of power and they could make your life really miserable. And obviously they wanted to make Jesus' life really miserable. And Jesus asks them, what should happen to the farmers who did this to the servants and try to take over the property that was not theirs to take? And what do they answer? The owner should come back. He should put the men to death for what they have done. And then he should lease the vineyard to others who will give them the fruit that he deserves. And you know what? They walk right into his trap. Jesus, I love to think about this. Jesus set a trap for these guys with this story. He told this story and he said, what do you, th- what do you think should happen? The prophet, prophet Nathan did the same thing to David. Uh, my son actually brought this up to me because he had he'd read this in his Bible earlier this week. And he said, dad, I don't quite get this. It's talking about David and how he stole the sheep from this family and he also killed this guy and can you make sense of this and there's this woman Bathsheba and I'm like uh how do we explain this and the prophet Nathan comes in and he tells David a story about the the sheep um, that was taken from a very poor man and David says hey the guy that took this sheep he man he should be punished severely he should be killed and Nathan goes you are the man Jesus set the same kind of trap for the Pharisees said, hey, there's these guys that got a piece of property that's not their own. They want to take over it for themselves. And all these servants came to get their share of the, the fruit. And then finally the son came and they beat him and they killed him. Like, well, these guys should be killed and they should be replaced with others. Here's what Jesus says. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. I don't know how well they picked up on this, but they surely knew this quote. It's from Psalm 118. It says just that, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. And you probably heard the very next verse. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What that's talking about is the day that the stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone the individual, the Messiah that was rejected by people and the religious leaders becomes the thing that our faith is all built on, that the new system is all built on, the new new vineyard is all built on. And I think you should pay close attention to this, at least I do, because I think this is so, so cool. This is just some Bible geeking out here. But think about what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking an analogy from Isaiah about the vineyard and a prophecy from Psalms about the cornerstone. And he's tying them together and showing how they both point to him while he's teaching the religious leaders about something and communicating prophecy about what's going to happen to him in the future, all in this one little package. That is just so cool to me. I don't know if that's cool to any of you, but to me, I just geek out on that stuff. Like, wow, look at this stuff. We have this incredible advantage now where we get to look back from from our seat here in 2021 and have all these resources to look and see, oh, when Jesus said this, he was talking about this and he meant this and all these connections. The people that heard this parable, they didn't have all that stuff. They didn't get to make these connections. We take it for granted. We don't appreciate how amazing this stuff is. You know, Jesus, remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those two guys after he rose from the dead? And he's walking along and the Bible says that he explained all the things concerning the scriptures. That's the Old Testament that pointed to him. Man, I wish we had that conversation recorded. There is all sorts of cool stuff, all sorts of connections in the Bible that we don't even get. We don't even understand. And one day we're gonna get to hear that lecture. One day we're gonna get to see how all this stuff fits together. But here's a little piece of it right here where Jesus has taken this bit from Isaiah and this bit from the Psalms. And by the way, this would come back later. Peter and others would use these same analogies and these same references 
to say, hey, this, this points to Jesus. In fact, Peter, probably with some of the same religious leaders after Jesus died, would, in, as part of his gospel presentation, would use this exact same passage from Psalm 118 to talk about Jesus. Again, I don't know if it's as cool to you as it is to me, but I, it's cool to me. The fact that we can look back and see this stuff. Well, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. See, God takes his garden very seriously. Isaiah talked about the garden not producing good fruit, produced bad fruit. And he said that what God would do is God would actually tear down the walls and allow people to come in and destroy the vineyard. He would tear down the hedges, tear down the walls, it says. He would allow animals to come in and destroy. He would allow thorn bushes to grow up in it. Uh, He would just allow the thing to be destroyed. He would withhold the rain from it so it would shrivel up and die. Why? Because God expects good fruit from his garden. He doesn't want bad fruit. He doesn't want no fruit. He wants good fruit. Isaiah goes on to describe what that bad and good fruit looks like. He says of the good fruit that God expected a harvest of justice, but found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but found violence. So what does good fruit look like according to Isaiah? Well, be good to each other. Don't treat each other poorly. Don't uh, use and abuse other people. Treat people well. That was the message from Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus shared this parable. And now Jesus is warning a new generation of people, a new generation of Israel's religious leaders that the fruit owner expects to find produce from the vineyard. And if not, the vineyard's gonna be taken away. And, And already this has happened. That God has found his garden to be lacking and they have been in in charge of it. They've been responsible for it. And so the kingdom of God, he says, will be taken away because God takes his garden very seriously and it will be given to a nation, he says, that will produce the proper fruit. Let's break this down. What did God do? Well, first of all, God delegated fruit production. God delegated fruit production to Israel and its leaders. That's what he did. He built the garden. He built the system with the Mosaic covenant and the laws and all of those things. And he tasked the religious leaders of Israel and Israel as a nation with being his representatives for the kingdom and producing fruit, with teaching their children and teaching other people. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. All people were supposed to be able to come to God through the nation of Israel. And they were supposed to produce lots of fruit. People following after God and doing good in his name. And just like the servants who went to the vineyard in the story of Jesus and were killed, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet who were mistreated and beaten and many of them killed. Just like the servants from the story. And just like the owner of the vineyard sent his son, God sent his son to this earth as well. And that's why that's an important part of the parable. God sent his son, not because he's unloving, but because he's very loving not because he's stupid, but because he knows this is the way to conquer sin and overcome it and to pay for it so that we can be part of his kingdom. And just like the farm farmers in the story killed the son, the people who are supposed to represent God, the people who are supposed to be the most connected to God, these religious leaders, these priests and these Pharisees would kill the son. They, they would take the very person who they supposedly represented in God and they would kill him. Why did they do this? Because they wanted the vineyard for themselves. Because they cared more about the comfortable life that they had manufactured for themselves. They took the old system that God built and they sort of redesigned it to work great for them and be wonderful for them. And they didn't want to lose that. And here comes Jesus and he says, there is a connection directly to God here. 
He says, I'm gonna teach you how to, how to follow God and be close to God and walk with God. I'm gonna teach you all the things that God wants you to do. And, and it starts to threaten the, the monopoly that the religious leaders have over their religious control over everyone in the area. And they don't like this. And so they kill the son so they could keep the garden themselves. Of course, they didn't really kill him. The Bible says that Jesus gave up his spirit on his own. But certainly from the outside world perspective, it looks like they killed him. And in some crazy 4D chess, Jesus asks the religious leaders who would soon be seeking his death, what should happen to the people who had responsibility for the vineyard but ended up killing the son of the one that they should have served? And their answer is, well, the owner should come and he should kill them and he should replace them with other farmers. And basically what Jesus says is, yeah, and that's exactly what's going to happen to you. The text says that they realized the story was about them, that they were the wicked farmers. Jesus put them on notice. Your kingdom is going to be taken away. The garden won't be yours to tend to any longer. Others will take your place. And that leads us to a very, very important question. Who are the others? Who are the people that takes the place of these religious leaders, of these priests? It's you and me. The Bible says that everyone who is trusted in Jesus is a priest before God. That we have direct connection, direct access to God. We are his representatives on earth. We don't have to go through another representative. That's why you don't have to come confess your sin to me. You don't have to go through me to get to God. You can do it directly. We are priests before God. We have replaced the old religious leaders. And, and we should think very long and hard about this. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus rebuked our predecessors for not being good representatives and not producing fruit. And back then, Jesus said, you will be replaced with another nation, and he's talking about us. Jesus was talking about us. I think it's so cool when he does that. There are times when Jesus prays, and he says, I pray not only for these, but also for the others that will believe because of their testimony. And it's like, oh, wow, he's talking about you and me. Jesus prayed for you. He did 2,000 years ago on this earth. He said, blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. He's talking about you and me. Thomas got to see and so he believed, but we, we haven't seen Jesus physically face to face. And yet if we believe, he says, blessed are those who don't see what they believe. Jesus is talking about you and me here when he says, this is gonna be given to someone else who will produce the proper fruit. So the question is obvious. How is your fruit production right now? If Jesus were to come up to you today, and start inspecting your branch, would he find lots of great fruit all over the place? Or would he find disease and illness and shriveled? Would he find self-centeredness? Would he find distraction? Would he find sinful habits that keep you from producing the kind of fruit that he wants you to produce? It's what Jesus wants us to do. Are we doing any better than the religious leaders 2,000 years ago? I wanna talk about how to produce good fruit. What's the point of having this conversation if we can't say, okay, here's some of the things that we can do. And there are lots of things we can do. I'm gonna give you three of them, three kind of major things that we can do to produce fruit. So pay close attention to these. The first one is this, do good for others. Do good for others. It's that simple. Go out of your way to help other people. Be kind. Don't gossip or spread negativity or division, but be encouraging to other people. Don't do anything to cheat or abuse other people or hurt other people. Find ways to be a blessing to them. 
both inside and outside the church. Maybe this means we have to sacrifice some things. It certainly means we have to give up some of the fun things that we like to do. The Holy Spirit helps us with this. The Holy Spirit prompts us in ways where, where you know, you encounter a situation, you think, oh, maybe I should help them. And you just have this strong feeling of like, man, I think I should go help this person. You know, maybe mowing their yard or bringing them a meal or, or you know, helping them in, in some other way. But then you're like, yeah, but there's also that new season on Netflix that I really wanna watch right now. So maybe I'm just gonna go do that instead. And this is the war that's within us. I mean, Paul talked about the fact that he had, he had these fleshly desires that he didn't wanna do, but he was drawn to them anyway and these spiritual things he, he really wanted to do, but it was hard for him to do. Paul acknowledges this struggle, this battle that we have of the things that we wanna do for ourselves and the things that we should be doing to help others. Those are things that produce fruit, do good for others. The second thing we should do to produce fruit is to share our faith with others. This was Jesus' last big challenge to his followers, to the new nation that was gonna, gonna replace the system of the priests and the Pharisees. What was the challenge? The great commission, we call it, to go and share the good news about Jesus with all people. And then to do what? To teach them to do everything he told them to do. Teach them the same thing. And what did he just tell them to do? To go and share the good news about Jesus with other people. See, this is supposed to be a cycle that never ends. It's a repeating process. One way to think of it is the gospel came to you on its way to someone else. Now, here's the problem. So often in the Christian Western world, we kind of think like, okay, there's that one time when I heard the gospel message and I believed in, I trusted in Jesus, and now I'm gonna live a different life and Jesus has transformed my life and I'm producing fruit by doing good for others. And that's where it ends. That is not where it's supposed to end. All of us are supposed to be actively sharing about Jesus with other people so that more people can be a part of the kingdom. This process is never meant to end. It's not the only thing we're supposed to do, but it's one of the things we're supposed to do. When's the last time you shared your faith with someone? It's not supposed, the line should not end with us. The gospel came to you on its way to someone else. Do good for others. Share your faith with others. And the third one is serve in the body of Christ. The Bible says that when you became a believer in Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, and there's probably some people here who aren't, but if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and he equips you, he gives you certain spiritual gifts. These are in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 primarily. And we'll do a series on the gifts sometime. I'm not gonna go into great detail here today, but there's gifts of knowledge and wisdom and discernment and service and mercy and giving and all those sorts of things, encouragement, teaching. And he gives us these spiritual gifts, why? So that we can be really proud of our gifts, so that we can take a test and maybe have an idea of what those gifts are? No. He gives us the gifts and he tells us specifically why. They're to build up the body of Christ. The reason God gives us spiritual gifts is so that we can serve each other. So that we can be actively involved in the body of Christ, that's the church, in our local church and in the global church. We are supposed to be actively involved in using our gifts to serve and help other people. That is one way we produce fruit for God. We serve in the body of Christ. What that means is every single Christian is supposed to be actively involved in their church in some way serving. Every single follower of Jesus needs to be serving somehow in the body of Christ or they're not doing what God equipped them to do. They're not using their spiritual gifts. Now that can look like a lot of different things. That can be helping out in a group. That can be leading a group. That can be serving with kids or with teens or the connections ministry or, or visiting in hospitals or caring for people or taking meals to people. That can be as a part of the prayer team. Um, there are lots of ways people can serve in church. It doesn't have to be a formal position. It doesn't have to have a title. It just means I am serving other people in the body of Christ. 
Some of the greatest servants in the church don't have some kind of official title. They just do it. It's what they do. They care for people. They love on people. They serve people. They take them meals. They, they pray with them. They're just so involved in using their gifts to help serve other people in the body of Christ. That is what we are supposed to do. Even if you're stuck at home, maybe you're watching this online right now and you're like, well, I can't get anywhere physically. There are things you can do to serve in the body of Christ whether it's calling people who are new to the church to help them get connected and welcome them or to pray for them or getting our prayer list and praying over the people that have needs in the church. There are lots of ways that you can be involved and serve. I mean, certainly if, if the last year has taught us anything, there's a lot more we can do at home from our couch than we thought possible, right? There's a lot of stuff we figured out how to do real quick that maybe we wouldn't have before. So there are things that we can do to serve God no matter where we are. And listen, it's not because the church needs it. It's not because God needs it. God is gonna build his church. We don't have to worry about that. The question is, are you gonna be a part of it or not? Are you gonna be an active and involved part of what God is doing to build his church? Are you gonna be one of those branches that's producing a bunch of fruit for him and saying, God, you are providing the nutrients. You are providing the spiritual gifts. I'm tapped into you. I'm abiding in you, tapped into the vine, and I'm gonna produce fruit for you in the church and in the community and by sharing faith with other people and doing good for people and serving others in the body of Christ. I'm gonna produce that fruit for you. Are you gonna say, no, I'm good. I'm fine with just sitting on the sidelines. And the gardener shows up and says, where's the fruit? What are we gonna be? You know, the church is a, a local kingdom outpost. That's the way I think of it. We are, we are the kingdom outpost for this little corner of the, of the world of St. Louis County right now. There are lots of other kingdom outposts all over the place. Last year, a lot of those kingdom outposts shut down. A bunch of them, more than normal. And obviously we all know a lot of the reasons for that. Uh, supposedly over the next 10 years, a lot more will shut down. A lot more churches will close their doors. And I would suggest to you that a major factor in the ones that will close down is how many of the people that were involved in those churches were actively producing fruit. What if God shows up to this little kingdom outpost, this little cluster of branches over here in this part of the vineyard and says, man, this place is doing nothing for me. They're not producing anything. We're not gonna invest in that anymore. And that kingdom outpost closes down. How are we going to produce fruit for our gardener, for our heavenly father, who's invested so much in us. I wanna mention one more thing before we close, um, because some of us are perfectionists, and some of us have this, I saw some smirks when I said that. Some of you are perfectionists, you know who you are. And you can get this idea that I'm just never doing enough. I'm never good enough for God. He's always displeased with me. Man, every time he looks at my life, he just thinks, boy, this guy's at 98%, but that last 2%, that's all the world. And what I want you to understand is that when we talk about the gardener showing up and finding no fruit, we mean no fruit or bad fruit. We're not talking someone who is really trying and really working hard and trying to serve God and doing the best they can because you've gotta understand there's another image of God from scripture, which is him as the father. He is not just the gardener, but he's also the father. I wanna give you this analogy. Maybe you've heard this before. I think I've used it before. God is the father. I have children. I have a uh, 20-month-old right now, almost an 18-month-old, but time flies. Like a 20-month-old, and, and she's walking around all over the place. I remember when she first started taking first steps. And she's walking, or she's trying, you know, she's kind of getting up and cruising, she's holding on to stuff in front of her, and then she starts to take her first step. And then she goes to take another step and just falls flat on the ground. And what do we do? We laugh at her, we ridicule her, we say, what a stupid baby, she couldn't even walk very far, right? No, of course not. 
We're like, yes, she took a step. What you gotta understand is our God is a father who loves you and cares for you, and he gets excited when you take a step. It doesn't have to be perfect. See, I know some of you this doesn't apply to, but for those that do, this is gold. When, when you take a step, and it's not everything you thought it was going to be, you have the tendency, if you're a perfectionist, to say, God is so displeased with me right now. And that is not the way God looks at you at all. The way God looks at you is to say, he took a step. She took a step. Oh, that's so wonderful. Let's keep doing it. The only way you get better at doing this stuff is with reps. The only way you get better is with practice. You take a step and you do it again. And little by little, you get better at it. And you serve God and you learn things and you do things better than you did before. And as long as you're on that journey, God is there going, yes, keep going. I'm for you. Let's do this together. He's not out there going, no, they didn't do it perfectly again. You know, that's not, that's not how it works. So yes, we need to be producing fruit. We need to be very careful that we are not allowing disease into our life, sin into our life, uh, self-serving things that, that we're not spending all of our time focused on ourselves and not producing fruit. But I also don't want you to take the other thing away from this, which is unless I'm producing all the fruit in the world and it's 100% perfect, then it's worthless and God hates me because that's not true either. God wants you to produce fruit and he's gonna be with you as you learn more and more how to do that. What the enemy wants to do is for you to believe that if you can't do it good enough or perfectly, you should just give up. That is a tactic of the enemy to say, ah, you tried, you failed. You weren't a blessing to people. They were probably discouraged by what you did. So you should just not do it anymore. Don't fall for his tricks. God is a loving father. He wants you to produce fruit. He will help you get there. Keep taking those steps to do it. Even if it's not perfect, he is with you every step of the way. I've learned we've got to cover both sides of those things because it's so easy to walk away from church with the wrong perception. And I want to make sure that we cover that well. Well, as we wrap up here today, I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. You can bow your heads right now if you want. We're going to pray that God will reveal to us where we have not been producing good fruit. Would you search your heart right now and ask God to search your heart? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable. And sometimes these are challenging ones to think through and apply to us, but we know for sure that you want us to produce fruit and you want us to produce good fruit. And so God, I pray that you would inspect our hearts right now, inspect our branches, show us those areas that have some blight, some fungus, some disease, some sin that has crept in, some self-centeredness that is there that's keeping fruit from growing. Show us those aspects where we have known we should be producing more fruit. We've known we should be doing more good for others. We've known that we should be involved in our church and serving using the spiritual gifts you've given us. But whether it's that perfectionist problem, the fear of not being good enough, or, or other kind of fears or busyness or distractions or whatever it is, we have kept from being actively involved in what you want us to do. And Lord, we confess that to you right now understanding that you are merciful and you are gracious and you want to just see us take a step. Help us, Lord, to produce fruit that will make you smile. Not just because we are afraid of your discipline, but because we are so thankful for what you've done for us and how you've transformed our lives. And we want other people to experience that love. You told us in your word that we are representative stewards, fiduciaries of your grace, that you have delegated grace to us to share with others. Help us to live that out. Help us to be the fruit-bearing branches 
that you want us to be. And Lord, we worship and praise you now. In Jesus' name we pray.